Welcome to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. The sag After Foundation believes that contributions made to our culture by performing arts are not only valuable, but also essential. And so we provide free programming and services like this podcast to support them. If you'd like to learn more about the sag After Foundation or access the full library of our conversations or make a donation to support this podcast, please visit sagaftra.foundation. That's www.sagaftra.foundation. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SagAfterFound. Thanks, and enjoy the conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my honor and privilege to introduce Harry Hamlin. Hello, Harry. Thank you so much for being here, and congratulations on on Mayfair Witches and on 80 for Brady, and welcome. There's a lot to dive into. Uh, Let's just start at the beginning and talk to us, even before we start talking about your stage work and your films in the 70s, talk to us about your your first inklings of wanting to be an actor. Uh, When you realize, maybe like around age 13 or so, that acting appeal to you, what sparked it? What was the, the genesis of that? Well, it was actually, I was 11, mm. and uh, the Pasadena, I grew up in Pasadena. Um, it was an occupational hazard for my dad, who worked in the rocket business. And um, the Pasadena Playhouse is a, a great uh, old theater in Pasadena, and they were doing plays for children um, when I was 11, and I was cast in a play called uh, The Egg and I, mm-hmm. where I played, uh, I played a squire, to a prince, and uh, there was a princess in the thing. Um, I was 11 years old. I forgot all of my lines, but I was absolutely head over heels in love with this girl named um, Janie Byrne, who was a year older than I, and she played the princess. But I was only playing a squire, so she wouldn't pay any attention to me. She only talked to the guy who was playing the prince. That's right. Who was 12. Right? Oh, man. So um, I enjoyed that experience, but I said to myself, if I'm ever going to be an actor, I have to play the prince or the king. I can't play the squire because the girl, it's all about the girl. Yeah. And, uh, and, and in fact, that morphed into the real reason why I became interested in becoming an actor, which was when my mother, when I was 13, decided that she was going to teach me manners and take me to New York City from Pasadena, taking the train to, to Chicago, and then flying from Chicago to New York. And I was to, to, I was to calculate all of the tips. I was to pay all of the bills. I was to open all the doors. I was to open, I, she taught me all the stuff that you, you know, if you're gonna be a gentleman, you gotta know how to do all this. You gotta open the doors and all that stuff. So we're in New York and we're at the St. Regis Hotel. And she says, you know, I think you need to see a play. I go, play, well, whatever. She said, she, and we were staying at the St. Regis Hotel. She went to the, to the concierge of the hotel, and, and for some reason, she got tickets to the opening night of Richard Burton's Hamlet. It was opening that night on Broadway. Um, now, I didn't know anything about Shakespeare at the time, and I didn't know anything about Hamlet, and I'd heard of Richard Burton because he was pretty famous, um, and I knew all about um, his consort as well. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor. So my mother takes me to this play and I'm like, oh, when is this going to be over? Jesus, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, but then, then about halfway through the play, there's a moment when Hamlet, who has killed Polonius, and the whole, the, the whole castle is looking around for Polonius's body. And at that moment, Richard Burton, who was wearing only black pants and a black t-shirt because the whole thing was done as a rehearsal, uh, he walked to the front of the stage and he said if you find him not within the next month 
you will nose him as you walk up the gallery to the main room. Um, and the way he did this thing with his nose caused the entire audience to break into uproarious laughter. And I go, wait a minute, this is a tragedy? They call this a tragedy? But it's actually a comedy because people were laughing like crazy. For, and he played it comedy to the whole rest of the play. Um, and it kind of inspired me. I said, you know, if you could do a Shakespeare play and make people laugh, that's a, a whole different ball of wax. But it wasn't, it wasn't actually that that was the final nail in the coffin for me wanting to someday become an actor. It was because my mother said, okay, listen, Harry, after the play, it is done that you go around to the back of the, to the theater, you wait at the stage door, and if we're lucky, we'll catch a glimpse of Richard Burton walking out the stage door. Now, it was opening night. So we walked around the back of the theater, and there was a big crowd of people there, the stage door, some stairs leading down to the alley, and suddenly, this gigantic black limousine, I'd never seen a car like that in my life, drove up in front of the crowd, and the crowd went silent. The door flung open from the stage. The door from the car opened at the same moment. I looked in the car, and there, sitting in the car, was Elizabeth Taylor, surrounded by at least 36 long stem roses. And Richard Burton came out of the door and he threw his scarf over his neck and he swept into the back of the car, into her arms. They kissed, the door closed, and it drove off. And I said, that's what I want. <laughs> and I got it. <laughs> there she is, right there. <laughs> What a great moment. What a great recollection. And, and you told me off stage just now that you kind of, uh, when you did Hamlet yourself years later, you kind of added a little bit of humor to it, obviously, as well, and kind of homage to Burton's performance. I stole his entire performance. <laughs> Are you kidding? And, and, and it, was a, it was a big success. Basically, I was playing Richard Burton. Uh, um, but yeah, I mean, he was a tremendous inspiration for me for that play. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, well, years later, you were planning to go into architecture at UC Berkeley uh, before acting came to the fore thanks to uh, a late class registration and a, a very fateful visit to the Redwood Forest. If you haven't read Harry's book, Full Frontal Nudity, I highly recommend it. Uh, that story and others are recounted in here. It's amazing. Uh, but I'm, my question is, do you think the fact that acting wasn't necessarily at that point like the in the forefront of your mind that you were going to do architecture that it made it a little bit more appealing or kind of came out of left field in a way and surprised even you uh in a way that maybe you weren't anticipating well absolutely because my my family had nothing to do with the arts at all my father was an aeronautical engineer my mother was an alcoholic we were not in any way uh <laughs> aligned with the business at all um <laughs> So my experiences at the Pasadena Playhouse and then with Richard Burton and Hamlet, I mean, in the back of my mind, was like, well, maybe you'll be an actor someday. But, you know, I think, has, did anybody in the room ever have that thought? Maybe I'll be an actor someday. Anybody here ever, ever think about that? Yeah. Hands? Show of hands? Okay. I was not alone, right? Okay. <laughs> in the back of my mind, there was always, well, maybe, you know, who knows? Um, but because my family was so square and so um, like not into that world, I said, well, what, what, would, I, what, what would interest me? And then um, 
architecture hit me, you know, and I started doing some drawings and I, I actually spent a couple of years um, studying architecture sort of armchair. And then, you know, miraculously, I got into Berkeley. I don't know how I got into Berkeley. I mean, it, uh, I think about it now and I go, that was, somebody made a huge mistake. But nevertheless, I, uh, I decided that their, their environmental design school which was one of the best in the country, would be a perfect place for me to get my feet wet with architecture. So I was going to drive up to Berkeley um, and enroll in the architecture school and, uh, and become the next Frank Geary. I mean, why not, right? It was, um, only problem was I drove up to Oakland the night before I was supposed to register, up on a Sunday night, and there was a party that night, and um, the woman who was throwing, the girl who was throwing the party said, oh, you guys... Well, I just got to tell you that that my father owns these tree houses in La Honda, which is south of San Francisco, and a bunch of Hell's Angels and Ken Kesey and these Merry Pranksters were they've been staying in the in these tree houses for about a year, but they just got kicked out last week by the Hell's by by the uh, the Marshals and 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 the Rangers, and so the, these tree houses are vacant. Let's go because they're really cool. So we caravaned over to La Honda from Oakland. And, uh, and like, we just graduated from high school. I was wearing seersucker pants. I was had my, I was wearing loafers with pennies in them, you know, I mean, um, and, uh, we were sitting around out. We went with these tree houses were just fucking amazing. I've got to tell you. I mean, it's like, like the Hobbit world. I mean, these tree houses built high up in these redwood trees. And they, at one time they had had electricity and plumbing and, and double beds. And it must have been amazing when they were running at full speed. But now they were all decrepit. They were dilapidated. The plumbing didn't work. The electricity didn't work. The roofs leaked. But they were still there and they were really interesting. So we're sitting around this fire. We've got a gallon of Red Mountain, I've got my guitar, I'm playing some Peter, Paul, and Mary or something, right? And all of a sudden, there's this, <clears throat> this noise of a huge Harley Davidson coming down off the highway into this little clearing where we were having dinner underneath all these tree houses. And this huge Hell's Angel gets off this bike, and he walks over to us, and he says, uh, anybody here got a wrench? You know, and... Uh, <laughs> And we were like, whoa, who is this? You know, we're just kids, you know. And uh, I said, I, you know, I, I actually had a tool kit in the back of my car, and I had some tools in there. And so we took a flashlight, and we went up into one of the high uh, tree houses, and he said, here, hold the light here. Well, I take this wrench and bash the sink. And he busted the drain pipe for this sink that hadn't been used in 30 or 40 years, and out came... 40 or 50 little tiny purple pills about that big. And he said, yeah, the cops were coming in here and I threw these down the sink and you know, I wasn't going to leave them here. So I came back and he said, by the way, open wide. I don't know what it was. <laughs> but I do know that I had a very interesting relationship with the butterflies and the ferns. <laughs> that surrounded the tree houses for the next two days. Which meant that by the time I got to Berkeley, I was three days late to register for the environmental design school. But I went anyway. They go, oh, let's go and register for the environmental design school. I get there, and I, there were a couple of people in the hallway. I said, well, 
where's the registration? And they said, are you kidding me? These classes were all filled up on Monday by noon. You know, this is the most uh, popular school in the whole campus. So I said, well, I got to register. I got an hour and a half to register, or I'm going to have to wait three months to, to come back to Berkeley because uh, I had no agenda. And the guy said, well, that building over there is the drama department. It's right across the street. And if you run over there, you might have time to fill out enough forms to fill up all of your requirements for the fall. I'm oh shit, okay. I ran over there, I filled out the forms, and it sure turned out that if I took Acting 101, that satisfied English. If I took History of Theater, that satisfied History and Composition. I, I was able to fill up all my classes and, you know. The only thing was, I didn't know, was that if I was in Acting 101, I was required to audition for all the plays. Because my plan, which was a really good plan, was I'll do this acting thing for a quarter, then I'll go back and become an architect, right? But when I found out that I had to audition for everything, the first play was Oscar Wilde's Salome. And uh, I thought, well, I didn't read it or anything. I just walked in and I read some lines. I thought, well, that's, that's over. I got cast. <laughs> I got cast right out of the gate, right? And then I thought, well, I, I had the smallest part in the play. I mean, it, it was called Soldier Number One. And uh, I had one line in the play, and that line was, it is an old sister. <laughs> well, the way I said it, the reviewer from the Berkeley Daily Gazette singled me out. And he said there was only one person who had a voice worthy of being on that stage, and that was soldier number one, Harry Amblin. <laughs> so my name was in the paper. Like in the first two weeks I was at Berkeley, and the drama department people go, oh, well, Obviously, this, this his name was in the paper, then we got to cast him in a few more plays. Right? <laughs> so I ended up doing like five plays over the next uh, year and a half. Never went back to to uh, a- architecture, and then and then was um, you probably read this in the book, but yep. I was um, I didn't want to I didn't want to live on campus because it was really stupid to live on campus with you know smelly, stinky guys, you know, in a in a. So I found a room. Uh, that I rented in a house up North Berkeley. And it, um, I mean, how, how did I get into Berkeley in the first place when I, I'm out looking for rooms for rent on the first day of school where 40,000 kids have just come in from all over the world? Like, is there a bed somewhere in Berkeley? No. I mean, but I got really lucky and about five o'clock as I was about to roll it in, I see a for rent sign on the door of a beautiful Tudor home. I knocked on the door, and this guy with long hair came out, and I said, um, my name's Harry Hamlin, and I, I, uh, I don't want to live on campus, and I see you've got a room for rent. And the guy says, oh, yeah, sure, come on in here. i got a room right in here for you. Don't worry. And it turned out that that house, beautiful old house, was a fraternity house. Now, this is, this is it was the Deke house. This is 1970 in Berkeley. No one is is going after fraternities, 1970 Berkeley. I mean, everyone's taking acid, they're smoking dope, they're, no one's, I mean, fraternities were persona non grata on the campus. So they, they couldn't pledge anybody, but they still had to pay the rent. So they rented the rooms out to just about anybody. And the second year, my sophomore year, I was the least stoned person living in the house. And uh, as a result, they made me the manager of the house, which meant that I was also president of the fraternity. 
Um, yeah, not bad for a sophomore, right? Uh, and, uh, and it was all good. Everything was great. The, the university had no idea um, that in order to pay the rent, I, as manager in my second year, had rented the rooms on the second floor out to girls. Remember, this is a fraternity, right? Um, I was tossed out of Berkeley in, in uh, March of, of 1972 for running a brothel. <laughs> yeah. Um, I got called into the dean's office, and, and he, said, um, he said, look, because what happened was everything was fine. We had a fire in December uh, in the basement. And uh, the fire department in Berkeley came to the Deke house, and they were uh, plucking people off the roof, and they just happened to be girls in their nightgowns. You know, it's like the Berkeley Daily Gazette said, wait a minute, what's wrong with this picture? <laughs> you know, so the, the dean, um, when he found, he got in the paper that I was running a brothel. You know, that's how, that's how it was kind of couched in the, in the press. And Ronald Reagan happened to be governor of California at that point. And Ronald Reagan saw this article about how this, you know, young student at Berkeley was running a house of ill repute out of a fraternity house, right? So that the, uh, the dean called me in and he said, you have to, you have to kick all the girls out today. You have to open the house for inspection from the university. You've got to write a letter of apology to Ronald Reagan and you've got to write a letter of apology to the fraternity. And I said, I'm sorry. But I'm not doing any of those things. And I went back and I called a meeting of the house and I said, uh, listen, everybody, you gotta, we're closing the doors. Don't let anybody wearing a suit in. And, uh, and we're basically going to circle the wagons. And then two weeks later, the guy, the dean calls me up and he's, he calls me back in his office and he says, uh, listen, we did some research. It turns out that your house is private. So you don't have to follow any university rules and you haven't broken any laws. But the governor of California and we at the university, in the strongest possible terms, ask that you not re-enroll in the fall. I said, are you kicking me out? And they said, oh, well, we can't kick you out because you haven't broken any laws. But once again, the governor of the state of California, the head of the Board of Regents, and the head of the university, in the strongest possible terms, ask that you not re-enroll in the fall. I said, whoa. Does that mean you're, you want me to transfer to another school? And they said, oh, that would be fine, transfer to another school. Yeah. I said, will you help me transfer? They said, well, you're president of your fraternity, right? I go, yeah, you're a four-point average student. Yeah, I'm pretty close. Yeah, I said, we might be able to help you. I, I said, any particular place you'd like to go? And I said, you know, there's that college, Yale, <laughs> in Connecticut. How about that? And they said, okay, no problem. <laughs> so, and it was a good thing too, because I had gone through the entire drama department at Berkeley. And if I had stayed at Berkeley, I would have had to like take some science or math or some shit like that. And it would have been, uh, that would have been a disaster, right? So um, I ended up transferring to Yale and did my junior and senior year at Yale. And, and I never told them that I'd gone through the whole drama department at Berkeley. So I was able to do nothing but plays and drama and stuff at Yale. Uh, they, they made me get a degree in psychology uh, as well. But uh, that's a long way to answer that's, that question. That's a, but but all, I can listen to you talk about that story for hours. I got no problem with that. <laughs>
and just a quick note about about Yale. So in psych, in the the BA that you got in both drama and psychology, as an actor, did obviously I would imagine that that obviously helps you understand the human condition more. The psychology degree, any of that sort of come into play even now still in some ways in understanding characters. And oh yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, I chose psychology because I wanted to figure out. Um, how not to become suicidal in my life. Uh, I, th- I thought that, you know, if I could understand the human condition from the point of view of, of Freud or Jung or some of those people, I might be able to make it out alive. Um, so it's, it has been a very good thing that I did. And it has been very good in the last few years when my wife has been on this Beverly Hills show and I've been able to pull out my DSM-5 and identify, <laughs> identify the personality disorders of her castmates. <laughs> <laughs> well, then in 76 at the at San Francisco's American Conservatory Theater, uh, you got your first professional moment on in Equus, Peter Schaefer's play Equus, which is where the book Full Frontal Nudity, one of the reasons why it's got that title. Uh, it, you uh, were on stage in the Full Frontal Nudity that is required in that play. I'm wondering, Harry, what... What about that experience sort of, there's a, you've spoken about kind of, you almost have this, this Zen moment on stage where you're sort of like, you kind of feel at peace in a way. What that sort of, how, how that sort of integrates itself into uh, a performer's psyche in some ways. Just that moment of being like, I'm here, I'm, here's all of me in this play for the greater purpose of this art and bringing it to another point. I'm, I'm sure that there's lots going on in that, in that moment, but I'm sure in the, in the moment in Equus, you were probably just wondering, am I going to get through this alive, right? I had to show my weenie <laughs> to 1,600 people yeah. a night yeah. for two yeah. seasons. Yeah. Yeah. That's trial by fire. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Uh, once you do that, it, there's really nothing else that, you, that you're going to be scared of. Uh, but yeah, that was Equus. It's a double-edged sword. It was a great role. I mean, award-winning role and everything, but <laughs> I had to show my weenie. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a double-edged sword. But uh, I'll never forget that the, the uh, head of the theater, the artistic director, had wanted me to audition for the play uh, early on when they were considering the, the role. And he, he called me into his, into his office and he said, I can't tell you what the play is, because it was a big secret that they were going to get this huge play at that theater. It was the third time it had been done, London, New York, and then San Francisco. And... Uh, he said, and I don't want you to read anything, but would you take your clothes off? And I said, well, down to my underwear? He said, no, all of them. I go, no. No, I'm not going to do that. And he goes, well, it's a good part. It's a good play. He, yeah, but I just really don't want to do that. So I left, and I didn't, you know, I thought, you know, who knows what this guy was going to do with a naked actor in his office. So uh, I, uh, I ended up turning down the role at the beginning and then another kid came in and opened the play with it uh but then that kid went off and couldn't couldn't do the remaining two seasons so i came in and did ultimately take my clothes off for the director Uh, and mainly he wanted to make sure that um that it wasn't too big that would have been a problem you know because i was supposed to be a 17 year old boy right and if you know it would have been a problem. So I'm not going to go into it any more than that. 
<laughs> well, then comes uh, then comes Hollywood and Stanley Donen's 1978 movie movie, which is a phenomenally interesting story, and I it's an homage, the the film is an homage to old fashioned double features. And which you play a 1930s boxer, uh, and and the way you came to the to that film is old fashioned itself, Harry, in its serendipity and its sort of right person, right place, right timeness. Even though you weren't looking to get into the movies, um, but nonetheless, it earned you a Golden Globe nomination for best motion picture acting debut. And a New York Times article about you at the time was headlined: "The Kid Who Walked Into a Knockout Role." Tell us about that experience and how it happened and the kismet of it, and and even the sort of the the, the conflict feelings you had because as we were just talking about on stage you were not looking to to get into the movies uh, at that time I was not no yeah. I, I, you know having studied the American Conservatory Theater and, and I studied classic was a classically trained actor my whole agenda was to work in the theater and to do classics and all of that um, and the movies was not part of the, my agenda at all um, and in, in in 1976 my third year at ACT my second year of playing Equus, I walked into the green room one day and there was a girl sitting on a sofa and she was filling out some forms. And she was a friend and I said, oh, what are you doing? What are you? He said, oh, she said, oh, I'm, I'm applying for a scholarship. Oh, really, what kind of scholarship? It's called a Fulbright. And what they do is they, you, you get to study overseas if you get the scholarship, they give you some money, you get to go and study in England or Germany or wherever you want to go. I went, oh, that's interesting. She said, she said I have an extra uh, application if you want to try it. I said, really? Yeah, yeah. she said, I'm not going to use this. So I took the application and I just whipped it out, filled it out. And I said, I wanted to go study at the Moscow Art Theater um, to study Russian and all that. I thought that would be a good thing to do. And so I I filled out this form and I put it in the mail and forgot all about it. Uh, Two months went by and I completely forgot about it. I mean, 100% forgot that I'd ever even done it. I get this big envelope in the mail that says, congratulations, you're going to the Moscow Art Theater. You're going to go study with a guy named Yuri Yefremov in Moscow. Okay, this is the height of the Soviet Union, by the way. This is the 80, you know, something. And uh, so I went out and I learned some Russian. I learned how to ask a girl out on a date. <laughs> um, a few other things. And, uh, and then, then Carter and Brezhnev got into a big spat about human rights, and they pulled all the student visas for all the kids who were going to Russia that year. So I couldn't go to Russia. So the Fulbright people called me up and they said, well, um, you can't go to Russia, but we want you to study Shakespeare in England. Um, so we're going to send you over to England. You don't have to go to school or anything like that. We just want you to, to, to see some plays, meet some people, write a paper, come home. Okay, well, all right. I, I said that I figured out how I was going to do that and how I was going to spend the next year in London and, and become a great Shakespearean actor. I would meet Laurence Olivier, maybe, who knows. And... Uh, and then I, I left to pack my bags in Pasadena to go to London. And while I was there, a casting director from Warner Brothers who had seen me, my weenie, uh, in San Francisco, um, she uh, called me up and found me somehow and said she wanted to meet me for uh, just a general meeting at Warner Brothers to talk about films. I said, I'm really not interested in, in doing films. And she said, no, 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 please just come in. I'll, we'll just have a casual talk. So what the hell? So I go, I meet the casting director, I meet the secretary for the casting director, and uh, and I, I said, you know, I'm really interested in doing movies, um, but I'm happy to talk to you if you want. And they said, well, all right, we understand you don't want to do movies and all that, but it, it, the casting director said, listen, just down the hallway right now, as we speak, they're casting a big miniseries, and uh, 
there's people in there right now. So she said, would you just go down there and read uh, for one of the parts in this miniseries? I said, I'm really not interested in in that. I'm going to go to London next week and I'm going to study Shakespeare. And uh, she said, well, listen, just just do me a favor. Just indulge me, she said. Just walk down the hallway and read uh, uh, some sides. So I did. I walked down the hallway and there's this really handsome kid sitting outside this office and he's got some pages in his hands. And he says, are you here to read for Awakening Land? And I said, well, I guess so. And he says, well, here, let's read this together. Um, and we worked on it for two minutes. And then we went in and we read it. And uh, fine, great. I thanked the kid, walked back to the casting director's office. And when I got in the office, the phone was ringing. And it was the producer offering me the lead role in the miniseries that I had just read for with Corbin Burnson, of all people, who was the son of the man who was producing the miniseries, Harry Burnson. Um, and uh, I, I just said, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to London. And uh, I, I, I have no interest in, do, in doing this. And, and they couldn't believe that I was turning something down at that stage of my career. But I honestly didn't want to do it. I mean, it was like, no, I'm going to London. I'm going to study Shakespeare. So I go home, and that night the phone rings, and it's the secretary from the, the casting director's office. And she says, listen, Harry, I got this idea. She said, uh, this director, Stanley Donnan, who did Singing in the Rain and a bunch of other great movies, he's, come, he's in town, and he's going to be screen testing two girls who were flying in from New York, Anne Reinking and Tova Felshu, for a big new comedy that he's doing. And they need someone to stand off stage and read the lines to these girls. Would you do it? And I said, oh, geez, you know, I'm packing. I don't really have time to do that. And, and the casting director said, well, I overheard you saying that the one thing you needed for your trip to London was a 35 millimeter camera. He said, if you come in and read off stage with these girls, we'll get you a 35 millimeter camera. So I sold out. <laughs> I totally sold out. And, uh, and, and I, I went in and, and I met Anne Reinking and Toga Telefelsu and I, Sat there off camera, throwing my lines at them, and they, you know, they were actually really good, uh, but I didn't know what I was doing. But it, so we did that for two days, and then on the uh, on the night, the second night, I'm I'm back home. I'm living with my parents, with my mother, and uh, the phone rings. It's Stanley Donnan. He says, he says, Harry, listen, I know you're going off to England, right? I know you don't want to do movies, but he said, I got a hunch that when you come back from from England, you're going to want some film just a, a few feet of film to show around. I said, Billy Stanley, I'm not interested in doing movies. You know, uh, he said, but he said, trust me, you're going to want a few feet of film on you. And we're going to get you that 35 millimeter cam- camera, but we'll also get you some film if you come tomorrow and allow me to put you on film. He said, you're going to thank me for this. I said, I'm sorry, Stanley. I really, I, got, I can't do it. He said, please just indulge me. So I did. I went in, and they put me in wardrobe. They put some makeup on me, and I did five minutes of the script for with Toba Feldshu. I go home. Now I'm seriously leaving the day after tomorrow to go to London. Phone rings. It's Stanley Donnan. It's the next day. They've looked at the film. And he says, listen, Harry, I know you're going to England. I know all that. But, says, but here's the thing. We saw your film. And we at the studio and I, you know, we think there's just nobody better to play the leading role in this movie. And I go, what? Yeah, and this is opposite George C. Scott, by the way. And it's, uh, you know, it's a 
big Larry Gelbart Warner Brothers picture. Uh, and I said, I'm sorry, Stanley, I'm going to London tomorrow, you know. Um, and I, I got off the phone and I, my mother said, who was that? And I said, well, that was that director, Stanley Dunn, and he just offered me the leading role in this movie. She said, oh, great. I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to London. She said, what? And she lost it. She went ballistic. And she said, no, 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 you are not going to London to get another thing on your resume that says you've gone to more school. You're going to go and make a freaking movie with George C. Scott, and you're going to do that because I'm going to meet him before I die, and this is the only way I'm going to get to do it. <laughs> so my mother insisted that I do this movie, um, and she ended up meeting George C. Scott, God rest her soul, and his. Um, and, and yeah, I, I got nominated for a Golden Globe uh, out of the gate for that. So that and uh, I'll never forget Stanley... Um, on opening night, we opened at uh, that theater next to the plaza in, in New York. Paris. The Paris Theater, right. We opened at the Paris Theater, and at, at the end, the audience loved it. They went crazy for it. We were walking out at the end, and I'm standing in the doorway, and Stanley grabs me by the shoulder and says, Harry, Harry, I hope this makes a good life for you. Oh. That's great. Wow. I get emotional when I, when yeah. I think about that, you know, because because uh, yeah. he did. I mean, he basically set the hook for my career, you know, by giving me that role. Then two months later, he asked me to be in a, a movie called Saturn Three, <laughs> and I said, Stanley, I read the script. I said, Stanley, I'm sorry, I can't do this movie. If I said you gave me my career, but if I do this movie, my career is going to be over. <laughs> if I do it, and you know, this is. I've always felt bad about it because you know this guy gave me my career, and he expected me to do this his second movie, which Harvey Keitel ended up doing. I mean, me and Harvey Keitel. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. But um, it was. It, I think when it came when the review came out, and I, I have a copy of the review on my phone, which is in there. But the review came out and said, "Let's talk about the worst movie made in 1980." The worst film of the of the year was that movie, so I'm very glad I didn't. It was Farrah Fawcett, yeah, yeah. and and uh, Kirk Douglas, Kirk Douglas, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you went on to right after that. I'm going to just mention these briefly because it was sort of the a lot of people forget, but but the early '80s, uh, we'll obviously be coming back to to television in the '80s in a moment was a golden age of television. And it doesn't quite equal what we're going through now, but it was close. And part of that was these great miniseries like Studs Lonigan and uh, Space and Master of the Game, both of those uh, huge successes uh, that you were in. Uh, but I just want to mention those because then I want to talk about Clash of the Titans, which, of course, I loved as a kid and I still love and is a cult favorite. And I want to talk about it in terms of, you know, now there's, you can't, Swing a dead cat without hitting a superhero, right? Hollywood has got a, a Hollywood in, a, a superhero industrial complex. But at the time, Harry, when you were playing Perseus in Clash of the Titans, it was you know Superman and Flash Gordon, and that was pretty much it. Yeah. And it was a brand new thing. And I'm wondering what helped ground you for that performance and for for kind of understanding it, kind of giving it your all, and kind of really making a a go of it because it's such an entertaining film. But and again, I just want to emphasize it was a new thing at that time in Hollywood. That type of movie, action adventure, superhero. I've never thought about it that way but you, now that you say that yeah there were it was not as Hollywood was not superhero land at right. that point yeah 
Um, I'm not sure I was grounded in the movie. You say I, oh, I grounded me in the movie. No, no, I, th- I thought you grounded? were. I think the earnestness that you have in that movie really helps. I think, yeah. I think the movie is terrifically entertaining, and I think that part of why it works is because you're really like you're there. You're you're invested in it. I feel like, and that helps the like Christopher Reeve and Superman. If that if that if your main character, if your main hero, is not invested in it, you lose it. And I think I think you are absolutely. Yeah. Well, the, everything I do, I try to invest yeah. Yeah. everything in for sure. Um, you know, I, I I thought that was a terrible script. I uh, no, I, I was offered another movie at the same time called Tristan and Assault, and Richard Burton was in that movie, uh, and Kate Mulgrew was playing Assault, and I was to play uh, Tristan, and we actually worked on it for about a month, uh, Kate and I and the director, um, and then I got a call one day that said, now you know, there's this movie with Lawrence Olivier. And Lawrence Olivier was my true, I mean, yes, I had seen Richard Burton and Hamlet, but the person I really re- revered was Lawrence Olivier. And uh, so they sent me the script and I went, oh, shit, if only the script was better, I could do this movie with Lawrence Olivier and I could get to meet Lawrence Olivier with my hero, you know. Um, and I, I, you know, I ended up choosing Clash of the Titans over Tristan and the Soul, which was a good thing because did anybody ever see Tristan and the Soul? Okay, so it was a good thing I did that. Um, uh, and I, I, I didn't get along well with um, the director or the producers of that movie. Um, they wanted me to do stuff that I, I just found really weird. For example, have anybody seen Clash of the Titans here? This movie, Clash of the Titans? Okay, anyway, so it's a Greek mythological movie about, about um, Perseus who... Uh, is given a magical sword by Zeus and uses that magical sword to cut the head off of Medusa because Medusa, if she looks at you, you turn to stone. So if you're going to defeat Medusa, somehow you have to do it without looking at her. So that's the myth. It's about this magical sword, cuts her head off. So we shoot three quarters of the movie. We're in Malta and we're about to shoot the sequence where I cut the head of Medusa off. And I get to my trailer in the morning, which is one of those trailers like that. It's the kind that is actually trailed behind a car. And uh, I, I go into it, and um, the first AD comes to me. He says, he says, Harry, listen up. Got some news for you. Got a telex last night from London, and you can't cut Medusa's head off with the sword. I said, what? That's the whole myth, the whole thing. Well, that's why I have the sword. I mean... Why else does Perseus have the magic sword that Zeus gave him if he's not going to use it to cut Medusa's head off, which is the whole story? And they said, yeah, but here's the thing. We did some research, and we found out that if you cut Medusa's head off with the sword, and your arm and the sword touch her neck, then this is going to get an X rating for violence in England, and any kids who are under 16 aren't going to be able to see the movie, and of course the movie is made for kids who are under 16. So I had a real dilemma on my hands, you know. It's like, okay, they're telling me that I can't do what the reason I chose the movie to do, which was the sequence where I cut Medusa's head off with the sword, the magic sword given to me by Zeus to cut her head off. So I said, all right, well, then how is her head going to be released from her body? So, well, we got this all figured out. You're going to take your shield and you're going to throw it like a frisbee. It's going to hit the wall and inadvertently slice her head off. Exactly, ricochet, right? And 
I said, well, in that case, you're going to have to find somebody else to play Perseus because I'm not going to do that. And I went into my trailer and I closed the door and then they unplugged the, all the electricity from the trailer. And uh, it was a really hot summer day in Malta. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm flying home to L.A. tonight. Um, I'll figure out a way to do it, but I am not going to throw my shield against the wall and have it cut off Medusa's head. And they flipped out. Now, this was Malta. We were in the middle of nowhere. This is in the late 70s. There's no cell phones, obviously. and There's no payphone anywhere. But they've got to go to Valletta, the capital, and they've got to find a phone, and they've got to tell ex-London. They've got to, there's all this gashry going on while I'm sitting in my trailer sweating like crazy because they've unplugged all the electricity. And about every 15 or 20 minutes, they sent somebody else into the trailer to try to convince me to throw my shield. And um, every time somebody came in, though, they would walk out on my side. And so it started with the first AD and the second AD and the, the cinematographer. And finally, the whole crew was on my side. And uh, there was nothing they could do but to, to cave. And we ended up shooting that sequence. In, instead of eight hours, we shot it in one hour. Um, but the producer uh, didn't talk to me for 30 years. Never talked to me again. As a matter of fact, he died. <laughs> Never talked to me again. Um, Ray Harryhausen, who was the co-producer, did talk to me 25 years later. Uh, they were so angry. Now, by the way, it didn't get an X rating for violence. I was right, you know. But then they came to me <laughs> after the movie was finished, and they said, "Is Eric? Listen, we've got the, this great thing is happening. We're doing a worldwide press tour. We're going to go all over the world to like 30 cities, and we're going to promote." Clash of the Titans. It's going to be amazing. We're going we're to start in, in Johannesburg. That'll be the opening party. And then we're going to go from there east. We're going to go to Asia and then I'll work our way around. I said, that's great. I'll do anything, everything, but I can't do the party in, in Johannesburg. I said, what? What do you mean you can't do the party? Well, I, look, I'm, I'm good with the, the whole rest of the tour. I just can't go to South Africa because I'm, I'm on an anti-apartheid uh, I mean like vice president of an anti-apartheid group in L.A. You know, and I, I'm not supp- I can't go to South Africa. And they said, yeah, but, but South Africa is underwriting the entire thing. I said, I'm sorry, I can't go. So they thought that they lost millions and millions of dollars because I didn't do that tour. And they probably did, I guess. I don't know. But that's why the producer never talked to me again. Your decision, though, made the film... And, and as I would imagine, anybody, nobody could argue against it, uh, more entertaining. And I think that that's part of the whole point of that film. Afterwards, uh, after Clash, you starred in director Arthur Hiller's Making Love, uh, a film that holds a unique place. Yes, a film that holds a unique place in Hollywood history. It was unique then, and it's unique now for how people see its impact. And watching again for this interview, it's, it's such a solid movie, and your performance in there is so good. It was the first mainstream studio film to depict a gay love story in a respectful way. Uh, just a little bit of history, just prior to it, a uh, year or so prior to it, was the exploitation thriller Cruising and the dumb comedy Zorro the Gay Blade. And even in the same year as Making Love were embarrassing things like Partners and Death Trap. Uh, this film is not any of those. This film is so much 
It, it, so look at it, it belongs with with things like Kramer versus Kramer and ordinary people, and even things like uh, you know an unmarried woman and starting over. Um, but the impact of it was was intense. Let's talk about before we talk, before we talk about the fallout of it and the and the response to the film. What was your approach to the character of Bar Terry and and how you wanted to play that character because it's such a, a, a deep performance and also very much of its time. Well, I mean, uh, the idea of of playing a character that lives in a different sort of sexual milieu. Um, and it did never cross my mind before I was offered the, that picture that I would ever be in a position to play someone who had a whole different view of the world like that. Um, and every other actor in Hollywood had been offered the role before me, and they had all turned it down because they all felt that it would hurt their career, and they were not wrong. So, uh, but I, nevertheless, aside from the fact that it was uh, not exactly a career builder, um, I'm it was probably the film that I'm the most proud of having made, um, and would never would never second guess it again. Um, and I didn't second guess it at the time. Like every other actor said, "No, I'm not going to do that movie. It's it's too dangerous to do it." But I have a kind of hubris that uh, allows me to take risks that are stupid risks. <laughs> and I, I, I got out of that one okay. I ended up having to go to TV, but still, it was fine. You know, yeah. it was, yeah, it ended up okay. Yeah, well, it is a movie to be proud of, and going to TV was not such a bad thing, because in 1986 comes L.A. Law and the role of Michael Kuzak. Yes, uh, <laughs> definitely. And the role of Michael Kuzak, Mickey, to his paramour, Grace Van Owen, uh, earned you three consecutive Golden Globe nominations and got you the title of People's Sexiest Man Alive in 1987. Uh, the show became one of the iconic programs of that era, and Michael Kuzak is one of the most recognized characters of that era, I think. Uh, it was created by Stephen Bochco, who already then was a legend for Hill Street Blues. And, and I'm wondering what your thoughts were when you first read the script, talked to people about it, Harry, and kind of got a sense of it. What, were your, what was your initial reaction to, to L.A. Law and to the character? They, the script was sent to me. Um, I was at William Morris at the time, and I was not looking to do a TV series. But the script arrived in my mailbox, and uh, and I I saw that it, I didn't. I'd never heard of Stephen Bochco. I was not. I didn't own a television at the time, and so I had not seen Hill Street Blues. Um, and I t- took the script and I just threw it on the uh, on the credenza in, in my living room. Forgot all about it. And uh, then about three weeks later, I had some friends of mine over for dinner. And one of them said, oh, my God, you got the L.A. Law script? And I said, yeah, what's the deal with that? And they said, that's the L.A. Law script. You, oh, everybody wants that script. How is it? Did you have it? And I said, well, I don't know. I mean, it was sent to me. I, I, he said, well, have you read it? I said, no, I haven't read it. I have no interest in doing it. He said, my God, you've got to read this script. Everybody says it's the best script in the world. And I said, wow, all right, well, I'll read it tomorrow. So to this day, the absolute best script I have ever read in my life. Um, And I had absolutely no desire to do a TV series. Um, As a matter of fact, I had negative desire to do a TV series. But I read this thing, and it was so freaking good that I said, I at least have to meet the person who wrote this, you know, uh, so I'm, my agents created a meeting between me and Stephen Boschko at Fox. I had a full beard. I had hair down to here. The way the character of Michael Kuzak was described in the script, he was a 44-year-old ex-football player with Coke bottle glasses 
and 15 to 20 pounds overweight. Uh, so I said to Stephen when I met him, I said, you're talking to me about Arnie Becker, the divorce lawyer? And he said, no, no, we, we want you to play Michael Kuzak. And I said, yeah, but 44 years old, bad knees, you know. And he said, don't worry about that. That's just the stage directions. Yeah. Um, but I, I, he offered it to me, and I turned it down. Uh, uh, flat, turned it down flat. And uh, uh, I was married to a, a different paramour at the time, and I was visiting her family in Ojai the weekend after I turned it down. And uh, she and her and my in-laws convinced me that I needed to call Stephen Bochco back and take another meeting with him because maybe maybe there was some way to make this thing work, you know. Um, so I did. I, I went back and I met with Stephen and um, he said, listen, um, I know you're resident, reticent about doing a TV series, but, you know, no, most TV series don't make it. There's a good chance that this will come out and it'll be canceled. And if it is, then you'll go off and you'll do something else. And if it's not, it'll be a huge hit. And you can ride on that for a few years, you know. So I said, well, then there's, no, there's nothing to lose here, right? So I ended up saying yes to it. And five years later, yeah, it was a five-year run. Yeah. It was great. And a great run. Talk to us about, about leading an ensemble. And while, of course, obviously it is an ensemble, it's a, you know, the, it, it reminds me of theater in a different way. But also it's the only time in, in television, I think, that, that that kind of thing really sort of worked. The first time something like that worked, this huge tapestry of characters. What was it like kind of being part of that ensemble, leading it? And kind of, you know, how did it relate to, in some ways, your, your stage experience in a lot of ways? Well, most of the actors in L.A. law were stage actors and had done... New York, Broadway, and stuff. Corbin, I think, was the one who had not done any stage. Um, so we all had a camaraderie. We had a we had, we had a language and and uh, we had a vocabulary that we could all share. Um, and and also they were fantastic people. Did anybody here see Eli Law? I guess a bunch of you did. Oh, so yeah, yeah. That that cast that uh, that group of people was extraordinary and. You know, to spend five years every day with the same people, they better be good people. Or you're not going to be, you're not going to come out of that experience very well. Right now, I'm doing Mayfair Witches for AMC, and that cast is similar in character to the cast of LA Law. So, and it's the first time I've signed on to do a TV series since LA Law. So it's been 30 some odd years since I've signed on to do a show. Uh, so yeah, I'm, um, I'm thankful to you guys in the back at, uh, for Mayfair Witches. The debut uh, on Sunday was fantastic. We'll be talking a little bit more about it in a, in a moment in Cortland, uh, Mayfair. Uh, one of the things about L.A. Law was that it was what's called a water cooler show. It tackled a lot of uh, a lot of issues and of the day, and also it was... Uh, Spicy, but and it was smart, and it was all those things. And in 2004, you made water cooler conversation again as Aaron Eccles, the villainous father uh, of Logan Eccles in Veronica Mars. Uh, he's a delicious character. He's sort of seething and vain, and he's sneaky. He is also an A-list actor. Uh, and it's been said actors love to play uh, parodies of actors. I've sort of read that, and whether it's uh, you know P- Lawrence Olivier in The Entertainer, mm-hmm. Peter O'Toole in My Favorite Year. There's something sort of juicy about that. How did you approach the character of Aaron, and was it sort of catnip to do a satire of a of a big action director oh, with a? It was great. Yeah. I mean, that character was fantastic. Okay, yeah. and uh, and I had done 
a show called Movie Stars, a, a half-hour comedy a few years before that for Warner Brothers. And I played a movie star in that also. And we had some footage of me doing um, doing the, the motorcycle chase from The Great Escape with Steve McQueen, Steve McQueen going over the barbed yeah, wire. Yeah. And they had, I did the same thing for, in movie stars. We had this footage and I'll, you know, I, I died in Veronica Mars. I, it was the greatest death in the history of deaths on television. Right? <laughs> Cause here I am. I'm this unbelievably narcissistic actor, big movie star. Right. And, uh, <laughs> the way they, they, they had my death scene, they had me sitting on a couch and I just had oral sex from this beautiful girl. Um, and she was pouring me a glass of uh, brandy and lighting a Cuban cigar for me. So I've just had sex. I'm drinking expensive brandy and I'm smoking a, a Cuban cigar. And a big luger comes up behind my head. As I'm watching myself on TV, jumping over these fences on a motorcycle like Steve McQueen. And I, I'm, I mean, that is like, just had a blowjob, just drinking the best drink possible, smoking a cigar, watching myself on TV, when this gun comes up behind my head and blows my brains out all over the television. And I think, you know, I thanked them very much for the, the graceful death that Aaron Eccles had. <laughs> I think the line that he says just before that is, who's that handsome guy? I think he says. It's, uh, I think I might have said, yeah, I think that right. handsome yeah, guy yeah, up there. Right, right, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> Well, for our, I think for the actors in the audience, I've got a question about your, your arc on Army Wives, uh, where your character Grant Chandler is a lawyer who's hired uh, Kim Delaney's character uh, before things get complicated there. And I, and I think actors might be interested in, in playing another lawyer, sort of having that experience on L.A. law, that background as, as Michael Kuzak kind of it must have helped, obviously, because while they aren't the same kinds of guys, all of that research and fluency in that subject must have been great to utilize again. And I think that actors probably kind of have that if there's something tangentially that they can, that yeah, they sure. can use, right? That's, it has to be a, a huge benefit in a lot of ways. Right? No, absolutely. Yeah. I was able to steal from all the other experiences I had playing lawyers and stuff like that for that. Yeah, that was... Yeah, that one, I'd forgotten all about that. Yeah, the, yeah it's a great, uh, yeah, it's a great thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, a, another certain kind of guy uh, is Jim Cutler, the character you played on Mad Men, which earned you an Emmy nomination for guest actor on a drama series. And it's a fantastic arc you have uh, on Mad Men. Cutler's introduced in the series here of 1968. Uh, he's a very pragmatic advertising exec. He's a correlative in some ways to John Slattery's. Roger Sterling, but he's got a quirky edge to him and, and a lot of other things going on. Talk to us about how series creator Matthew Weiner discussed Cutler with you and what it was like portraying him. What did you, <laughs> what did you see in him? Because there's a lot going on there. Well, the, the, a lot kind of happened as we filmed it. There wasn't much on the page to begin with with Cutler. And, and actually, Matt Weiner, um, I had gone in to read for another role. And the only reason I had gotten in to see Matt Weiner to read for this role, because Matt Weiner never hired people who had a profile. He liked to get people off, you know, who were unknown in, in the show. So the casting directors, these two girls, spirited me into his office. They, they put a different name on the docket. He would never have seen me if my name was out there. No. So when I walked through the door and he saw me, he was like, he, he had to deal with it. You know, I mean, he was shocked because... I wasn't supposed to be the person walking through the door, and but I read it anyway, and it was it was a small part, and it, the one I was reading for was one day's work, 
And uh, I got a call from my agent later that day saying, you didn't get the part. I go, oh, well, it was Mad Men. It was good to meet Matt Weiner anyway. It was great. Why not? And at that point, I had no idea that I had been spirited into the room under a different name. But I found out two months later when they called me up and they said, actually, um, Matt Weiner wanted you for a bigger role. It still isn't that big. It's going to be three episodes. And uh, you're going to come in and you're going to buy the company or something, the advertising agency. And it ended up being three seasons, you know, two and a half seasons. Yeah. So uh, um, c- clearly I did something right. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, his, uh, um, that was a very interesting thing, uh, Admin. To come into a, a group of people who have been working already uh, with such elan for so many years and had won so many awards and uh, such a tight-knit group and to suddenly be... Uh, a guest star on it and I was like what's going to happen now I'd never done that before but they were so gracious and so nice um, that is a well earned yeah. Emmy nomination and and uh, that role uh, needed someone of your stature their centurion tones that to kind of carry that off because there has to be sort of that that element to that character uh, another point on there is that, that Weiner once said that mm-hmm. advertising in the 50s and 60s is like architecture is not it was perceived as the ultimate American job as it had a creative element and you made a ton of money and I I feel like, uh, in some ways, uh, I, your father was a specific kind of guy. And I wonder if in, in portraying Jim Cutler, there's sort of a sense of dad was an aeronautical engineer, not an advertising guy. He worked on the Jupiter program for NASA, the F-1 rocket, and many other things. But I'm wondering if, if there was something about the straightforwardness of Cutler. There's some, there's that great moment when, when they're walking into a, to a client and, and Cutler says, I just want this on the record. I'm totally against this unless it works. And there's a, there's a great line delivered beautifully. And there's a, but there's a pragmatic quality. And you mentioned that, that about your dad too. And I'm wondering if in kind of bringing that character to fruition, there were sort of elements of your dad's era of mid-century kind of masculinity oh, yeah. that you brought in. Yeah. No, absolutely. And uh, my eldest brother was a madman. I mean, he was of that era and he was an executive at Mobile Oil Corporation, but you know, he behaved exactly the same way that Don Draper did in that. Yeah, and, yeah. From the drinking yeah. to the smoking to the girls, you know, that, that's the way they, they behaved in those days, you know. Uh, but it was, uh, it was, it was somewhat challenging to work for Matt Weiner, who was, uh, he wanted everything to be just so. You couldn't deviate one iota from his vision. And if you did, you were in deep trouble. Yeah. Well, the result is pristine, and it's so terrific to well, rewatch that. Here's, here's yeah. a little anecdote. That, so for some reason, my arms and my neck size, they don't jive, I guess, with, with shirts that are made uh, for most men, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm a 15 and a half, 33. I've always, it's been a, never been a problem for me. But when, they're, when Janie Bryant, who was the costumer on, on uh, Mad Men, was trying to fit shirts on me, she couldn't find any shirts from the 60s that fit me. So she said, we're going to have to build some shirts for you. This is how, how specific Matt Weiner is. He said, you can only build shirts for Harry if you find a bolt of cotton that was manufactured in 1968. Wow. So that's how that's specific right he was. Make it look like yeah. that arrow shirt yeah. type of arrow. I mean, yeah, it's exactly. just cotton, yeah, right? Right, right. <laughs> Well, I mentioned your, your dad and, and science, but I want to talk about you and science. And science, of course, is absolutely a through line in your concern for clean energy and nuclear fusion uh, through your funding of, of TAE technologies, Tri-Alpha technologies. Talk to us, Harry, about the importance of that to you and, and indeed to the, to the planet and what it involves and how important it is. Well, I would have to say that it's the most important thing in my life. You know, the, uh, I was 
introduced to the notion of fusion. If anybody here knows what fusion is, maybe some do, some don't. But it's uh, fusion is another way to derive energy from matter in the E equals mc squared sphere. So energy equals the speed of light squared times the resting mass of an object. So uh, the sun, for example, is a, is a fusion energy machine. Uh, and all the energy that comes out of the sun comes because there are hydrogen protons being fused at the core of the sun because of the extraordinary pressure at the center of, of the sun that is forcing these positively charged protons, which normally are repellent, to actually meet and fuse because the pressure is so great. And when that happens, it releases three helium nuclei, which are charged alpha particles, and those alpha particles carry a tremendous amount of energy, which can then be um, transformed into electricity. So uh, years and years ago, 1980, I ran into, I discovered this technology, and I've kind of been the, the main shepherd of this technology for the last 30 years, I guess. Uh, started a company in 1998, which is now TAE Technologies, um, and we have raised about a billion and a half dollars so far. We've, uh, we're partnered with Google, so we've been partnering with Google for eight years, and uh, the former head of General Electric, Jeffrey Immel, left GE, and he's now helping to run this company, and the former uh, department, head of the Department of Energy, Ernie Monitz, under Obama, is now running the company, too. Um, and I'd say we're, we are within a couple of years of being able to provide absolutely clean, non-toxic electricity to the world for the next 100,000 years or so. Oh, that's fantastic. Yes. Yeah. It has been a long journey, but, and, and I, but I, I'm, I'm very confident that we're going to be able to do it. That's extraordinary. That's absolutely extraordinary and, and heartening as well. Uh, there's nothing more important, obviously. Uh, it, it is, there have been many other, uh, in terms of career stuff, fun and illuminating performances uh, in recent years. I really like you in The Meddler, by the way, uh, as an actor playing Susan Sarandon's late husband. And, oh, and I like you as a cult. Uh, uh, I really like you as a cult leader in Rebirth. Uh, let's chat, though, about Anne Rice's Mayfair Witches. Uh, which, as we know, just debuted on AMC this past Sunday. Cordlin Mayfair, your character, uh, is introduced in a smoking jacket, sort of wanting to play with this giant snake, and he's a, got a gleefully malevolent look in his eye, playful. He's like a supernatural Hugh Hefner in some ways. Uh, he's really terrific. <laughs> what did you think of the character when you first read the script adaptation of uh, Rice's uh, I love the character. Um, there were elements of the character that I saw on the page when I first read it, and I said, if I can just expand on these a little bit, if I could like open this up a little bit, maybe I could have a lot of fun yeah. with this character. And, um, and they let me do it. Uh, so um, no, one, no one so far has said, get the hook. <laughs> so um, I'm looking back there because the showrunner is sitting right back there. As this <laughs> so uh, uh, anyway... Um, yeah, the, I, I'm just having a blast. It, 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 I loved playing Joey Popchick in Movie Movie because it was a broad character and I loved doing broad characters. And so really, I mean, if I really look back on the, the last 45 years, this is the, the character that most resembles the kind of character that I like to play Interesting. Uh, in, in Mayfair Witches. 
I love that. And there's there's a sleekness to Cortland as well. Like there's you know the hair is jet black. I mean he just feels like he kind of came out of a vat of oil in a lot of ways, ready <laughs> to that. play. Right. <laughs> it must be a lot of fun to just dive in and and to track it through and to see where it's where he's going, where what could happen. Right. Well, I just hope we have more seasons because I just you know I love playing this character so much. But, yeah. Uh, well, it's the debut was fantastic. I can't wait to see more of it. Uh, and talk to us about eighty for Brady and what it was like acting with Jane Fonda and that amazing quartet of ladies in there. Uh, including Rita Moreno, Lily Tomlin, and Sally Field. That must have been a lot of fun, too, right? Well, I mean, yeah. think of it. Yeah. You know, the, these four women, they define film acting. Yeah. They define comedy in film. You know, they are the definition of great film performances. And, uh, and to get to work with them, and they, have, they were so gracious as well. And, and in this movie, it's, uh, it's called 80 for Brady, and it's about the 2017 Super Bowl game which if any football fans are in here, that game in the third quarter, they were down by 28 points and, and Brady was able to win the game. I mean, uh, everyone was leaving the, the stadium. I was at a friend's house watching it and I left, I went home, turned the TV on to see the post game and they're in overtime, you know? And so I go, wait a minute, what happened? <laughs> Something happened here. Well, the movie is about what happened and why it is that Tom Brady was inspired to, to win that game. And it was Lily Tomlin, that's all I'm gonna say, who's really the main event there. But in the movie, I, I, I played Jane Fonda's boy toy, and we get to exchange some bodily fluids. A little bit. Um, um, and uh, that was a lot of fun, by yeah. the way. Oh yeah, um, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, all of the, all of the performers, obviously, including yourself, and there just looks like you're having a great time and a lot of fun, which is terrific. And a big studio movie again uh, for the first, first time, time since, in 40 years. Right, since making love, right? Yeah. Since making making love was the last studio picture I did until this one, That's 40 years later. Exactly wow. 40 years later. Wow. Yeah. That's it. We're going to take some questions from the audience now. One question asks: Are you still active with the Creative Coalition? I am yeah. very much so. Uh, I was um, involved with a group that predated the Creative Coalition, which was a group of women in film back in the 70s and early 80s. And then that kind of morphed into the Creative Coalition, of which I am now a lifetime member. So it's, yes, it's something that's been close to my heart for years and years. Next question says, uh, in your career, what role resonated the most for you? Well, I mean, that question is asked to me a lot, uh, and, and there's only one answer to that question. There can be only one answer to that question, and that is Hamlet. Because anybody who has ever played, any actors ever played Hamlet, would only be able to answer that question that way. I mean, it's, it's so far away above everything else uh, to be able to say those words and be that character. And it's just the, the gratitude that I have had for the last 30 some odd years for having been able to play that character and, and with a great cast and in a great theater with great people. It's like, you know, that's it. I mean, I could have died at them after that. I mean, I'm, I'm done, you know. You would, by the way, you, uh, I have it as a later question, but let's talk about uh, the use. Stage is obviously still so important to you. Uh, and, and you, every week or so when you can, every, you'd still take acting classes, kind of keep the acting muscle going and kind of let's talk about that because that I think is, is phenomenal. It's just sort of something that when your schedule allows, you're able to do it uh, every weekend and it really is a. I've been in, in class pretty much my entire life. You know, um, in the nineties, we studied with Larry Moss, uh, I'd studied with Milton Katselis for years and years. Then we morphed over to Larry Moss. And then um, Milton died 15 years ago, I guess. And uh, they brought his class back in 2011. 
And uh, I started doing it again in 2000. I haven't stopped. That's great. It's always about learning. It's always about kind of constantly fine-tuning the... Well, this is a place, I mean, where we can go on Saturdays and we can, you know, it's called workspace, but um, I would like to have called it stretch because it's a place for actors to go and um, and do stuff that you'd never think you were going to do anywhere else. And with a group of people who are all uh, equally well-trained and professional. And and so every week, uh, something new and interesting and exciting happens in that class. Yeah. Next question is, it says we were just talking about it. How excited are you about the breakthrough in nuclear fusion this month? Ah, well, that breakthrough was huge. Um, what it did, and for those of you who are uninitiated, um, fusion is really, really, really hard to do terrestrially. I mean, the sun and all the stars are fusion uh, machines. But to create a miniature sun in a laboratory um, in just the right conditions to be able to extract energy from matter, um, it's never been done before on the planet. We know it can be done. We've done simulations with Google. We know that it's possible to do it. It's just the engineering and the science, the physics is very, very difficult. What happened two weeks ago at what's called the National Ignition Facility at the Lawrence Livermore Lab is that a gigantic device called, um, what is the name of it? The NIF. Uh, just, they just call it NIF. It's a 192 huge lasers that, 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 direct, extremely well-calibrated light onto a tiny pellet of gold about that big, inside of which are deuterium and tritium, which are heavy hydrogen. And the impact of this gigantic laser hitting this little gold canister with those two elements inside caused what's called ignition. It caused, for the very first time in human history, um, uh, a fusion reaction to take place on the surface of the Earth. It only lasted for a few nanoseconds, um, but it was enough to prove the fact that we have been barking up the right tree and that we will be able to achieve fusion on Earth. So it was a gigantic breakthrough. Yeah. Yeah. You've had such an eclectic career and so many eclectic and varied characters, Harry. Is there anybody that you haven't played or any type of character you haven't played that you would love to? Well, I'm just starting to work on Lear right now because I think it's come to that. <laughs> no, I think. Uh, but uh, I never got a chance to play Romeo. It's one, you know, I never, uh, it's one thing I'll go to my grave having not played. But, you know, I've been really, really lucky. I've played so many wonderful characters and I've had such great opportunities in my life. And they, they you know, they keep coming. Yeah. Yes. I, mean, I mean, how about that? Right? <laughs> And I think one of the reasons, obviously, they keep coming in addition to talent and everything else is your, is your outlook and your curiosity and your, and your constant uh, seeking of the right way to go about things, thinking things through. Uh, in talking to a room full of actors, what advice would you give them uh, in pursuing their career to wrap up, Harry? What, what advice would you give young actors, actors of any stripe, to, as they're pursuing their careers? Well, I have, I have a standard advice thing that I could give to anybody under any circumstances, and that is don't worry. Um, you know, has anybody here ever spent any time worrying? <laughs> what did it get you? <laughs> okay, so don't worry. Okay, um, but for actors, look, I, I think 
I always suggest that people start out in the theater. If you want to be an actor, that you learn stagecraft and uh, and work in the theater, work in front of a live audience, um, and that gives you the the uh, kind of experiential wherewithal to take that anywhere to, on any set anywhere. Uh, I think a lot of actors, you know, are terrified um, of working in front of a camera who haven't worked on stage, and uh, I know a lot of actors who hate acting. I mean, who who are terrified of doing it, yet they do it anyway, and like maybe for the money or something. But I love acting. I mean, I I, I do it for free. Don't don't take that to heart. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am always eager to see what you do next, like all great leading performers who are character actors and characters who are leading performers, and you are both. Uh, it, you always lead us down fascinating paths. I'm always curious and excited to see where you're going to go next. Thank you so much for being here with us. Ladies and gentlemen, Harry Hamlin. Thank you for listening to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. If you appreciated what you heard, please support us with a review or donation. And reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at SAG-AFTRA-FOUND. We'd love to hear from you.